Good morning to our friend Al Bad. Hey, Al, how's it going? Good. You know, I was uh, yesterday or perhaps Sunday, I was listening to KMSU and I heard uh, Rick Dees do Disco Duck. Oh. <laughs> and um, I have to say, I like ducks. Yes. So I only comment on that song. It, it, it was. Uh, it was different, and I think uh, it did very well as a song. So <laughs> That's enough, huh? Yeah. You know, there's a gang of wild turkeys that have adopted a stretch of highway not far from my humble abode. They're on Highway 13. And I haven't seen them pick up any trash yet, but I hope that's their intention after adopting that stretch of highway. They're eating spilled corn and probably spilled soybeans if they find some there. And the road, uh, Highway 13, is busy. But the turkeys claim the right-of-way. I had to come to a near stop before the turkeys grudgingly vacated my lane. And I have no doubt they were telling me to go around. But occasionally a turkey is hit by a car, and the carcass of the big bird becomes a meal for bald eagles and crows in the daytime and coyotes at night. And I saw bald eagles feeding on a roadkill deer and snow buntings feeding on seeds on the roadside, not far from those turkeys. I uh, Today I went for a walk in the snow. It's that, I don't know, unappealing snow mm-hmm. where it's kind of crusty, only it's not crusty enough to hold a step. <laughs> Yes. So you're just forever falling through and pulling your foot out, and uh, maybe it just it, I I like snow, but it just is not the perfect day to do much in snow. And I was out there and I listened to the sounds of birds, and it's nice to know who's there. I thought I thaw a thaw. On average, January 23rd is the coldest day of the year in much of the northern oh. hemisphere. The warmest day of the year on average is July 24th almost uh, six months. A January thaw is defined as at least two straight days with temperatures above 32 degrees. I heard from uh, Bill Thompson of Manorville, and Bill said we noted our first brown creeper of the winter this morning had a good look as it worked its way up some oak trees in the yard. Fun to observe and seems pretty uncommon in our winter bird community. Uh, Bill uh, did Christmas bird counts, and I struck out completely on the brown creeper. On occasion, I will find one, but it's always uh, it's always reason for a mini celebration when I do find one. Uh, though they eat mostly insects in winter, brown creepers will eat suet and peanut butter, and occasionally sunflower seeds. They're eating pine seeds, grass seeds, probably even some corn. And you're more likely to see them if there are large old trees nearby. Uh, They're long-tailed scraps of brown and white, and they spiral up these stout trunks and main branches, sometimes passing downward-facing nuthatches along the way. And they start near the bottom of the trunk. They work their way up the tree to within several feet of the top, Then they fly to the bottom of another tree, or perhaps the same tree, to begin again. And in the winter, they maintain the same diet of insects and other arthropods if they can. But again, they'll eat small amounts of seeds and other plant materials. Uh, Brown creepers occasionally will visit seed and suet feeders each year. Kind listeners will send me a photo or two of that happening. 
a summer resident of the forested region of the state, and they are just so cool to see. I, I, they're just lovely little birds. Why don't they go to the very top? You said they stop within a few feet of the top. Why don't they just keep going? I don't know why that. I suppose some of them maybe go all the way to the top. Those that are maybe into marathon climbing, <laughs> but the rest uh, give up. And they, you know, who knows why they're doing that. Uh, I guess we could speculate that they start at the bottom and then go up, where a lot of other ones are going the other way, like nuthatches or go around and down. And they probably get a little different view of what they're hunting for. And uh, they can find it. My wife has proven to me that you can find anything if you look in the right place. Because uh, I'm like a lot of husbands, honey, where's my white shirt? And <laughs> it's right in front of me here. I've got the refrigerator door open saying, Where, uh, where's the Cool Whip? <clears throat> well, it's right. If my mother would have said if it had been a snake, it would have bitten you. And yes. I guess um, I guess they just, uh, I don't know why they don't go all the way to the top. I was watching one. I had I had two of them here in my yard for a while this fall. And I watched them go up an ash tree, and they'd go up, and then there'd be a fork in the road, and they'd have to decide which way to go. They seemed to prefer going the one that goes straight up. And they would go all the way almost to the top, and then they would fly, just drop down, and start up again. So I don't know why they why they didn't go all the way to the top. But altitude it's an sickness. Thing. Maybe it's altitude sickness, Al. That's, uh, yeah, and I was hiking out in Colorado, and I noticed that for the first time, where I was, uh, got up to, oh, I don't know, uh, get up there pretty high anyway, and all of a sudden I could hear this kind of wheezing sound. I thought, what in the world is that? Well, it was me. I never noticed that before, so it's one of those things that maybe happens. I, I don't know, I just hadn't, maybe hadn't done it enough lately. I got a nice note from Vicki LaRoon and Tom, and uh, Vicki said that Flandreau is a gem and the upkeep for hikers, snowshoers, and cross-country skiers was well done in my amateur eyes, and Flandreau is a state park in New Ulm. And Vicki said so much so that I could keep my eyes on the trees for much of the walk. Though the birds were fairly quiet, we did see three deer and enjoyed all the other winter sights and colors. The book I'm reading is Life List by Olivia Gentile about Phoebe Snetzinger. Do you know about her? And then there's Florence Miriam Bailey, who I've only heard of a couple of times. Uh, and my goal, I think, right now is to identify the various sparrows that frequent my feeders and have made many adaptations to their diet and feeding behaviors. Wishing you a wealth of wild sight sounds and fun today, Al, today and every day. Um, boy, thank you, Vicki and Tom. I wish you twice that. I, this uh, Phoebe Snetzinger, it was a sight of a Blackburnian warbler that determined the fate of this of Phoebe. She was a 34-year-old Minnesota housewife. And Phoebe Snetzinger was the woman who made her life's work of documenting more than 8,300 bird species that she saw. She was the first pe- person to see that many, at least document it. Yet it was 
just before her 50th birthday when she was diagnosed with cancer that the bored and frustrated housewife, sounds like a TV show, Mm -hmm. turned her pastime of bird watching into an all-consuming obsession. Her first tour after the cancer diagnosis was to Alaska. And then she traveled across all seven continents, aided by her late father's inheritance to document the world's birds. And the trips abroad took their toll. She reportedly missed her mother's funeral and her daughter's wedding to attend birding tours. Oh, you know, I'm all for birding, but don't do not do that. She injured her knee on a mountain trail, sustained a permanently crippled arm after she broke her wrist, and, oh, I won't even go into what happened to her in New Guinea. It was just a, a terrible, terrible thing. Yikes. And her final trip abroad in Madagascar, I believe it was. I know it was in November 1999. She was riding in a van. It rolled over and crashed. And I will, I'm going to say this. She was the world's most famous bird uh, lister. You know, Roger Tory Peterson had to be the most famous. He was the godfather of birding. But Phoebe was the most famous of those that kind of made us a sport of it, if I dare use those words, where she listed birds, the number of birds she saw, and she did the documentation too. So it wasn't just all counting, but her goal was to see more and more birds. So I'm going to say she was the most famous bird watcher. She died instantly at the age of 68. And in her memoir, she wrote, if it's my last trip, so be it but I'm going to make it a good one and go down binoculars in hand. (laughs) So uh, Phoebe Snetsinger, she was um, ahead of her time in many, many ways, and she is the epitome of obsession. She just, uh, it was seeing more birds was it in her life. The uh, other one that Vicki mentioned, Florence Augusta Miriam Bailey, that I would... uh, Oh, I think I could be boldly say nobody pretty much has heard of her, and it's sad. She was a an American ornithologist, bird watcher, nature writer, and I had to look up the dates. Between 1890 and 1939, she published a series of field guides on North American bird life. And these guides were often written with the amateur bird watcher in mind, and it led to the popularity. excuse me led to the popularity of the birding movement so she was she was like the godmother maybe of birding and she did wonderful things now i believe uh florence was afflicted with tuberculosis so she had that to deal with while she was doing all this but she worked to stop the slaughter of birds for use in hats and she worked to get the Audubon Society up and running so she did so many many good things and she de- she deserves to be uh, better known and more highly thought of I guess but it's Florence Augusta Miriam Bailey and she just uh, did so many wonderful wonderful things um, thanks for bringing those up, Vicky. And uh, uh, guys, you notice those are both women. I don't know what we, what were our ancestors doing, and our, uh, what they were doing during that time. 
Uh, Derek Barnes saw a pileated woodpecker at uh, Silver Lake WMA. That's in Worth County, Iowa. Uh, uh, Dave Bartke, a friend, saw a fox sparrow in Owatonna. Craig Zimprick saw a Cooper's hawk in Lesseur County. It's a uh, Oh, it's a little early, and that's why it's notable, I guess. Uh, Brad Amondroth also saw a Cooper's Hawk in Dodge County for the same reason that's notable, because it's a little early to be seeing them, although we do see them here and there. Uh, Mark, oh, Mark, I always get your last name wrong. I think it's Tacky, T-A-C-K-E, and if it's Tack, Mark, I apologize. I'm pretty sure I got Mark right. Saw an eastern towhee in Brown County, and an eastern towhee would be rare this time of year. A listener named B said, when did cardinals first come to Minnesota? Uh, Yeah, northern cardinals are common. They're a common breeding species in Minnesota. They spread from southeastern Minnesota into Minneapolis and west Owatonna by the 1920s, but the first... The state's first record for a cardinal was in 1875, and many of the first arrivals that were documented were lone males that appeared in the fall, winter, or spring, and they appeared in scattered locations in southern Minnesota. After that 1875 record, the cardinals appeared in Sherburne County in 1887, Candy, Ohio, 1894, Fillmore County, 1898, and Martin County in 1913. T.S. Roberts, who uh, is the father of Minnesota ornithology, uh, he was a doctor who uh, just loved birds. He wrote that the first confirmed nesting of a cardinal was in Steele County in 1925. That was a nest with eggs in it. And nesting was documented in Hennepin County in 1927. That was young cardinals being fed by adults. And in Goodhue County in 1930, again, a nest with eggs. So now we got them, and they're going farther north. And why are they doing that? The Cornell Lab says the cardinals' expansion is due to two factors, more bird feeders and more landscape yards with shrubbery, which provide fruit for food, shelter for nesting habitat, and cover in the winter. Now, so. I, I noticed our cardinals tend to eat the seeds off the ground versus in the feeder. Is that a, Are they normally a ground feeder, or is it just the preferred seeds fell on the ground? <clears throat> yeah, they like, uh, they like to feel a lot under their feet. Oh, okay. They want a nice purchase for their feet. So they will... I will see them occasionally on a hanging feeder, but it doesn't, they look uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You know how it is. You see somebody that says, oh, I used to roller skate, and then you put them on roller skates, and they just (laughs) have that look like they're pretty uncomfortable there. Or we never forget how to ride a bike. Well, you know, if you haven't ridden one for 30 years and they throw you on a bike, you're going to look uncomfortable, and that's the way cardinals look on these hanging feeders. That said, they they do like platform feeders, but they seem to be most uncom are most comfortable on the ground. Uh, a lot of people use old stumps as feeders, and cardinals love those, and uh, so those are good because it gets the feed up off the ground. 
the cardinals like uh, oh, black oil sunflower seeds, and they also like the striped sunflower seeds. And everybody says that the cardinals love safflowers. Uh, mine don't seem to care about it so much. If I put it out there, they will go to the black oil sunflower seeds first. A listener says, why am I hearing great horned owls calling now? December and January are when great horned owl pairs engage in this vigorous hooting while establishing territories and courting. It's believed that uh, many of them do mate for life, and they'll be incubating eggs by February. The breeding pair may perform a duet of alternating calls with a larger female. She's bigger than he is, but her voice is higher in pitch than the male, so he has a deeper hoot. And it's that time of year when we hear them, you know, it's, time marches on, as we say. Harvey Benson of Harmony wrote, When you were a youngster, Al, did you read Thornton W. Burgess books? They're my favorites. Boy, Harvey, I'm sorry. I wish I did. I did not. I had to look up who Thornton Waldo Burgess was. He was born in 1874 and shuffled off this mortal coil in 1965. He was an American conservationist and author of children's stories. He was sometimes known as the Bedtime Story Man after his newspaper column, Bedtime Stories. And by the time he retired, he had written more than 170 books and 15,000 stories for his daily newspaper column. And Burgess used his outdoor observations of nature as plots for his stories. So I, <clears throat> I'll bet a lot of people have read him that are listening. But I, I was uh, completely clueless. I'm sure I'd probably come across his name before, but I, I didn't remember it. So I thanks Harvey, and I will uh, endeavor to read one of those. I'm still looking, fifteen thousand newspaper columns haven't you done that many at least al you know i tried to figure up how many i'd done once in uh four times 30 some years uh four times a week times 50 yeah four times 52 times 30 some years and you know i have heartland math skills so i have (laughs) no idea what that is but quite a few though for obviously Yeah, yeah, and somebody said, uh, do you repeat yourself? I said, how would I know? I just, I can't (laughs) remember back 30-some years. So I I think you have to repeat yourself, and you don't know it. I try to check, and I at least check uh, uh, column titles, which kind of give me an idea. But 15,000, it just, it makes me kind of weary just thinking, 15,000. And I don't know how long is were. Uh, in those days, I think daily newspaper columns were probably a lot longer than they are now. Uh, a friend has done columns for many years, and I think he's down to four or 500 words now for his column uh, just because of uh, space in the newspaper, which is that makes me sad. I, I love newspapers. I love the smell of newspapers. I love that tactile sensation. 
and uh, I, that people are read. I just heard from uh, two listeners in Mankato who said they enjoyed my piece in uh, the Mankato magazine. So oh. what a wonderful, wonderful magazine that is. So that's awful nice to bring that up. And, and they, uh, Mr. Murray does a great job on that magazine. So I appreciate him very much. Uh, somebody said, uh, why did I see a bald eagle perch near its nest in December? You know, it might have been checking its nesting site for any maintenance issues, you know, like the cabin. you got to check at the cabin do, so often. Do they really days. do that, or are you just making that up? Well, I don't know if they're checking on the pipes, but oh. they, they would <laughs> certainly check on that because, uh, you know, other concerns. They they usually begin defending their nest sites in mid-January, wow. so they might be in there just saying, look, this is my place here, you know, if anybody's watching, I just want you to know I don't want any trouble, but I'm I'm ready and willing to, to have some. They're, uh, if you live around or walk an area where you see an eagle's treetop nest, you might notice, you say, boy, that looks like it's bigger every year. It does increase in size each year. A couple add sticks and plant material to it, and part of that is pair bonding exercise. And eagles typically lay two eggs, occasionally three, in early February to early April. So they, uh, they're they just there checking on their property, make sure everything's all right. There's no squatters in there. The great horned owl will uh, take over a bald eagle nest if it can. And they are hard to get out of a nest once they're in there. So they're squatters, and they just are not leaving. you got to throw them out, and it doesn't do the eagle any good to file a lawsuit because the great horned owl <laughs> is not a reader. It's still not leaving. So, And they have some uh, pitched battles uh, between eagles and uh, great horned owls that a lot of people have caught on who, video who cams. Usually, Al, who usually wins those, do you know? You know, if the great horned owl is uh, firmly entrenched in there, it's just real hard to get them out. They are not, uh, they're not frightened of anything. I'm sure the eagle's saying, do you know who I am? I'm the national, I'm the national <laughs> emblem of this country. I'm the national bird. And the great horned owl probably says something obscene back. And <laughs> it just, it doesn't work to get them out of there. They're really tough, you know, that. They're called the Tiger of the Woods for a reason. Great horned owls are just uh, amazingly fierce, and they they just, I, and I've mentioned this often, I grew up with a great horned owl that a, uh, the game warden brought out because my dad was kind of good with, with animals and fixing animals up and always was willing to build something to put an animal in, and then the uh, game warden would say, well, we'll try to find a place for this critter and which didn't always happen. And I grew up with a great horned owl, and as I've often mentioned, they're the symbol of wisdom. He wasn't real wise, but what he was was fierce. He was just, he had no fear whatsoever of anything. It was an, an incredible bird, and it was, uh, I'm so pleased I got to spend some time in the company of a great horned owl. I, I have a great respect for him. I saw some uh, mallards the other day. Oh, I... I you know, Dawn interrupted this morning, uh, the, it interrupted the night, and I heard a woodpecker drumming on a resident tree, and the bird is proclaiming its territory. So it's, I'm hearing chickadees doing that, 
that wonderful whistle, which is a, telling us that spring's here, which it, it's not. Um, I watch mallards finding the cold water of a lake companionable, but I I couldn't get my ducks in a row for a photo. It was like herding mallards. They are. Um, it's amazing how they can go in that water and not have any. Oh, here I got a text from somebody said, "When is the breeding season for possums?" Uh, I I have one that comes into my yard, at least one, every day. Uh, Possums mate between January and May, and they have two litters of 6 to 20 young each year. Yeah, that's right, a litter of 20. Uh, The young aren't fully developed at birth, so they climb up the mother's belly and into her pouch, and they remain in there for 60 to 70 days. And then maybe a month after that, they climb in and out of the pouch, never straying far from mom. And when they're about the size of a mouse, they climb onto their mom's back, where they spend much of their time before they become independent. And possums eat almost anything. Worms, snakes, insects, eggs, young birds, fruit, grain, garbage, and carrion. And after eating, possums wash much like a cat. And I gave a piece of bread to the possum out here. And I know some will say, well, you're not supposed to be feeding bread to stuff. I, You know, if you watch what a possum eats, I don't think a piece of bread's going to hurt him any. And he just seems so happy with it. He just he grabbed it and waddled off. And they can actually move pretty fast, but they just look... Uh, look like they're moving slow. So he was so happy to have that piece of bread. And it was on a cold, cold day, and he was able to go off and find wherever he's denned up, I'm sure, and enjoy that piece of bread. And it made me happy. I think they're beautiful bird, or beautiful birds, beautiful mammals. I, I love seeing possums. And this little guy has, he had pink ears and pink tip of his tail, but now those have turned black. Aww. And it looks like the tip of the tail is about to fall off. And, Aww, uh, okay. you know, if you've had cold hands or cold cheeks, you know, it's painful just having it cold. Well, this frostbite has, it just has to hurt like the dickens. Can so it kill I, them if they get too much frostbite, I wonder, or not? I'm sure it could, you know. It gets infected, get, I suppose, or something. Yeah, yeah. And they, uh, I guess that's why they have up to 20 babies, yep. so they can can replace all those. Because I don't know how long they live. I wouldn't think it's very long. I imagine, like most things, if they can make it past that first year, then they can, they can put some years on the books. But, boy, otherwise, when they're little. Hey, yeah. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for sitting on the front porch with Karen and I It's uh, and me. Um, it's, you know, it's always cloudy when I finish the cheese because ain't no sunshine when cheese gone. I, I just love that. <laughs> ain't no sunshine when cheese gone. I'm sorry. It, I got an email on how to read maps backward. It was spam. And uh, I'm sorry about that one, too. I got uh, I get some questions that don't have a whole lot to do with birds or nature, and I, I want to answer three of them here. Uh, what was the first call Alexander Graham Bell received? Uh, well, we all know it was from someone telling him his vehicle's warranty had expired. Uh, a listener said, Al, my grandparents got me up early in the morning so I could chop wood for breakfast. Did you ever have to do that? 
Uh, no, I never had to eat wood for breakfast. We always had uh, cereal and eggs and bacon and things. So, but uh, boy, yeah, I'm sure it made you a better person. Uh, a listener says, "Al, could you name the seven dwarfs without looking it up?" I could, but uh, there's no need to. Uh, they have names already. So, remember, folks, Heartland is while we're driving past. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Karen, as always, I enjoyed your company. So, thanks for all you do. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to KMSU. Hey, thank you, Al. It's always great to chat with you. We'll be with you next week. Take care. Look forward to it. All right. Bye bye.